We good? It's not going to blow up, right? Okay. Sorry, Ernie. <laughs> um, good morning, everybody. Um, my name is Danny. I'm one of the pastors here. Um, just want to welcome you again. Um, before we go into the, to the sermon, um, I just want to ask, give us a little bit of time to pray. And um, so this past Thursday and Friday, about 15, I think it was like somewhat 15 to 16 of, of our people at our church was able to go to a conference called the Global Leadership Summit. And uh, this is one of the biggest leadership conferences in the world annually, not just, it, not just Christian conferences, but just leadership-focused ones. And uh, they, saddle, they like, uh, send out, create satellite campuses all around the world globally. So in Massachusetts, there's four. In some of the bigger states, there's more. And they're literally international. And so they are in Chicago, and they live stream it all around the world. And during every conference, every year at the GLS, they, ask, they take up an offering so that more campuses can be placed in areas and neighborhoods and churches and in settings where the local people wouldn't be able to afford it. And as this was going on, like they talked about like the number of campuses that have started to, to project this stuff and all the fruit and good things that have been coming out of people being able to hear uh, the word being preached, able to get training and having access to this type of knowledge and, and sh- sharpening. And how it literally transforms communities. And as the offering was going around, I was just thinking about how lucky and, excuse me, I'm not going to say lucky. How blessed we are that every week we come to a church and we get taught something. Any day, any moment, I can flip open my phone, type in whatever topic I want. Humility. How to lead a business better. And we can click a button and be trained. But there's so many people around this world who don't have access to that. And so before we begin the, the, before I start talking and speaking on the message, I just wanted to invite all of us to just sit for a second. And even if you need to get that cognitive connection of being grateful for the fact that we have this type of access. And that we can join together every Sunday without anything getting in our way. And hear the word of God being preached to us freely. And I mean, for me, I was really struck at that moment how much I take that for granted. And it's such a gift. Some people are like begging and hungering for this kind of stuff that we have at our fingertips. And so let's just bow um, and just close your eyes for a moment. And let's just think about that. And then I just want to ask you to pray a prayer of thanksgiving. Really simple, saying, God, thanks for um, allowing me to have access to, to the preaching and teaching of your word. And then let's just pray a second prayer, even if it's just one sentence. And saying, won't you... Get, or get every distraction out of my way that I would be able to hear your word in fullness and that I would be able to live by it. Just a simple prayer. So let's take 10, 15 seconds on that and then I will pray for us and we will begin. Father, we really do thank you that we have so, so much. And I don't know if everybody else in the house is like me, but oftentimes I think I have very little. But I have been given so, so much. And so as we continue this service, Father, collectively, we just want to join as individuals into one body and with one message to say thank you, God, for all that you have given us. Thank you that we have your word, that we can read it, study it, preach it, listen to it. 
And God, we also want to pray that you would make our hearts fertile, you would open our ears, and that each and every one of us, whatever it is that you want us to hear, and whatever it is you want us to connect with, that every single one of us would be able to connect with that. So we thank you for your word, and we thank you, Lord, that we have it in our hearts and our lives. And we thank you for this time. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So as you all know, um, not this past Friday, but the previous one was the opening ceremonies of the Olympic Games in Rio. And it's a, you know, even that, like, it's, it's like every four years it comes around, but it's a really, really big deal. The Olympics started in 8th century BC in Greece, and isn't it crazy to think that something like thousands upon thousands of years old still continues today with this regular pattern where all the nations, like how many things do we have in this world where all these different nations come together and celebrate together? The, the unfor- as much as it's such a big deal and an important event, one of the unfortunate things about this year is that there's been a lot of negativity surrounding the games. And it seems like more news coverage, at least in the beginning, was more on all the bad things that were happening Uh, versus the excitement around the anticipation of who's going to win what medals and how the athletes are going to do. And the biggest one, you know what I'm talking about? The Zika virus was the big story. It was the thing that everyone was worried about. I was listening to a stand-up comedian who was talking about how a lot of Russians got kicked out for doping. And they were, he was joking, like, the Russians, they doped on purpose so they, could, they wouldn't have to get Zika. Like, they wouldn't have to go to Brazil. It wasn't that they were trying to hide it. And it was just a big, big deal that the Zika virus was keeping people scared about going. So a little bit history about Zika. So it was discovered in 1947 in Uganda. And since then, really, I mean, it's a big deal, but it really hasn't created much to worry about. The largest outbreak since its discovery was just a few years ago in 2013 in French Polynesia. It infected a little bit under 400 people. So that was the last time it was a really big deal, was just under 400 Since this outbreak in Brazil, it has already infected more than 1 million. So it went from, oh my gosh, 400, and now it's over 1 million and counting, and spreading north and north and north, even some traces being found in the States. Right now, there's no cure, and there's no vaccine. And it's currently being made, made, the vaccines are currently being made right now, but until a couple years at least before it'll be able to be mass-produced and sent out and administered, And so the only thing that can control Zika right now is you and me, or the people down there. It's all in the hands of the communities. It's spread through mosquitoes, and now they're saying that there's also possible that Zika can be spread through sex. And so ultimately, mosquito control, which is somewhat in the hands of the people in the communities, and safe sex practices are the only way that this is going to get under control. The thing is, like, one thing that we know, and it's not only with Zika virus, but plenty of issues in communities, the more people there are, the less responsibility an individual feels. If it's something huge, it's kind of like, oh, well, the government will take care of it. It's not really my responsibility. And so everyone kind of withdraws and takes a step back, and then the public health suffers because not every single person is bought in. And while while, while Zika pertains to public health, Um, and physical health, I think the same goes for church communities. A lot of times there's something that can be like a, a volatile substance, something that has a lot of power to spread, something that can be very common, that is up to the hands of the people, but we withdraw because, well, that's up to the pastors, or that's up to the leadership teams. 
or that's up to the church and the community group leaders to take care of. It's got to be fully bought in by every single congregational member in order for us to have any control over particular viruses that can harm communities. Today, in the Sermon on the Mount, we're going to be beginning in chapter 7, in the first verses, in the first five. And what Jesus talks about is something that I would consider a, I don't know, like one of the most harmful viruses to the community of faith. And that's judgment, hypocrisy, and what I think is even the the fruit, which is much worse than those two things, is the lack of grace. Because we're hypocritical, because we judge, we're not gracious with each other. And so my hope is that after the, I mean, even now, and today, and and the weeks to follow, my hope is that all of us don't just see this as a responsibility of the other person, but rather take it upon ourselves to be able to fight against this virus, if you will, and to protect the health of the people of God and the communities of faith as we do life together. So let's look at the passage. Again, we're going to be starting from Matthew 7 and verse 1. Judge not that you be not judged. For with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged, and with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye when there is a log in your own eye? You hypocrite. First take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So pretty simply, before I move on, I'm just going to split this passage, this sermon, into two parts. Very simple. What the passage is not saying and what the passage is saying. What we should not do and what we should do. So just clear division, 50-50, what we, it's not saying and what it is saying. And I'm going to start with the not, and I'm going to actually start from the, ba- from the, uh, from the bottom, or the, the last verse, so we're going to go backwards a little bit in verse 5. So let's reread this. Jesus says, you hypocrite, first take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. So I want to highlight something that's probably, um, I don't know, different than what you're expecting, because you're probably expecting me to say, oh, we shouldn't be hypocritical, and like, get the log. But what I want to look at in verse 5 is the implied command to, in fact, take something out of another person. So it's more of an order of events here, right? First, take the log out and then go. He doesn't just say, hey, all you hypocrites, take all the logs out of your eye and go on your way. There is an implicit command to end up doing something, right? There is an assumption that you should actually make some sort of corrective action upon the flaws of somebody else. We do take a speck out, so the passage of the whole, is ta- and we'll talk about this later, is, is talking about the wrong in judgment hypocritically. But it's not saying that we shouldn't make judgment calls on other people's conduct, period. It's not saying that. The reason why I want to focus on this is because uh, when Matthew 7, 1, the, the first verse, judge not that you be not judged, when that verse is misinterpreted, it creates havoc and strips the gospel of so much of its worth. Historically, people have seen this verse and used it as leverage on others to, and even argued with it in, in, in scholarly academic papers of how ethics and morality is relative. Didn't, don't, you, don't you Christians even see in your Bible it says you're not allowed to judge other people? So here are some phrases that have come out of the misinterpretation of this text. 
No one has the right to speak out against the way others choose to live their lives. You've probably heard this phrase, to each his own, his or own, her own. In a more or less formal, probably interpersonal way, you don't judge me, I won't judge you, let's just live in harmony. You live how you want to live, I live how I want to live. Let's just leave it at that. Right or wrong is created through our own lens and my definition. And we know from the counsel of the whole scriptures how far that is from the truth, right? There is definite evil and righteousness, sin and good, bad and good. There's clarity in the scriptures that this could not be further from the truth. In a second level, one thing that I've sat in front of many of you, with one of you at Starbucks, like, or on, on campuses, or in CGs and small groups, I've heard these phrases countless number of times. See if this may have been you at one point. How can I talk to my, let's just, roommate, fill in the blank, about their sin when I'm imperfect? How can I tell my brother that his conduct is hurting him when I have conduct in my life that hurts me too? Who am I to speak out against practices in someone else's life when I don't have my whole act together either? How can I rebuke her about something that I also struggle with? Right? Doesn't this happen very often? So what this passage is not teaching is, on the bigger level, moral and ethical relativism. relativism. We have every right, because of the scriptures, to make absolute statements about whether things are right or wrong. What this passage is also not teaching is that you have to be perfect to judge, otherwise you're a hypocrite. So let's not misunderstand it. This passage is not teaching you ought to stay silent and keep your mouth shut until you're an expert on the topic, until you're old enough, experienced enough, and mature enough, or until you have your whole act together in that particular topic. This passage is not encouraging the church and Christians to be silent or passive about the speck in the brother or the sister's eye. So that's what it's not saying. So what is it saying? What's the other half? Let's look at verse 1 again and 2. Judge not that you be not judged, for with the judgment you pronounce you will be judged, and with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. So it's pretty standard. Jesus is saying, well, however you hold people up, you're going to be judged by that same means. And it's easy for us to kind of brush over that, but it begs us to ask the question, well, how do I? What are my standards? How do I measure other people up? So here's some common examples that I thought about. And what I assume is going to be the most popular topic. Has anybody ever asked you or have you ever been the asker of, what do you look for in a boy or a girl? Can you describe your perfect spouse in the future? Should we play MASH and you live in a mansion and you drive a Lamborghini? Right? Every, well, maybe not everybody. Most of us, I'm pretty confident most of us have been asked or asked, been the one asking, what do you look for in a perfect spouse, in your future husband, your future wife, and what kind of boyfriend, girlfriend, who meets your standards? And what do we answer? We say, oh, well, somebody who's always patient and who's willing to, to deal with all of my flaws and do it lovingly, someone who's very invested in their career and works hard and is never lazy. And our list goes on and on and on. Now, let's flip it and ask the question, would you want to date yourself? If somebody had standards, would you meet theirs in the perfect boyfriend, 
would you be able to say, oh, hey, you said that your perfect boyfriend was somebody who's patient in every circumstance, and that's me. We all are very, very good of creating this ideal person, but I wonder if we would even meet our own standards of the perfect spouse, the perfect girlfriend or boyfriend. Let's talk about money usage. How many of us have rolled our eyes at seeing, oh my gosh, did you see how much money they wasted on that particular thing? So irresponsible. And it's really quick for us to judge, like, you said that you didn't have that much money and you're going out and buying this and that. Ladies, I know that if I were to pull one of you out and ask of some random name, what purse does she have? You'd be, oh, it's red and it's from this company and it's this this much. You'd probably know and you guys are all somewhat sizing each other up for what brands you have and you could probably mention the sunglasses that the girl in your CG has. Guys, we're like, I don't know, it's black and plastic. Girls, you know the exact brand. You probably know what store they bought it from, right? Can you nod if you feel me? No, nobody, no, no, nobody knows. You know, you know. Guys, I don't really know what we do, but maybe it's a car. We want to buy the best car. We're insecure about, like, driving an older, like, Honda. We, we can't wait for the day that we get to pull up in a BMW. Thing is, for me, I'm going I'm to be vulnerable with all of you, right? I'm going to tell you where I am super judgy when it comes to money, and, and I'm going to make everybody feel insecure. It's water. When I see people walking around with Voss, Or smart water, osmosis. It's cleaner and purer. I get so judgy. Rich guy. Like, who who drinks Voss? Let me me tell you something. At Costco, a 40-pack of 20-ounce bottles, $3. That's the same price as one bottle of premium water. I'm a tap drinker as well, so I, I get really judgy. But we all have something in which we roll our eyes. Oh, like, how could they be so irresponsible with their money? But for me, oh, I'm good. I can buy this because I have the excuse for it. Let's talk about effort, laziness, procrastination. Students, have you ever heard somebody judging somebody else all the time for skipping class, but they skip class all the time too? Oh my God, so-and-so never goes to class. They're getting bad grades. Well, don't you skip classes too? Oh, well, yeah, but the professor's boring. Or he, pre- or he teaches out of the book. And we have these quick excuses. Something that to my heart's burden and to the pain of my soul, which has happened so often in the past few months, is people talking about others and wasting their time. And they're like this. Oh, so-and-so is so immature. They're not an adult. Oh my God, it's a Pikachu. And like running around with their phones. And if you want to, if somebody calls you lazy this month, ask them to see their phone and if Pokemon Go is on their phone and you can tell them that they're being hypocritical. We judge each other's time usage. But if I Netflix binge, it's because I had a long day. We are quick to judge. What about diets or going to the gym? So-and-so wastes so much money every month because they paid 100 bucks a month for the gym membership and they never show up. Well, How often do you go? Oh, well, I mean, my boss is hounding me, so I can't have time. We're quick. You get the picture. The question is, do we really meet the criteria that we set for other people ourselves? Do we meet it? The thing is, humans, we have the propensity to judge others with a stricter standard than we hold ourselves to. And on the second half, which is just as important and just as harmful... 
is that we're quick to forgive ourselves or to excuse ourselves where we are very slow to excuse the faults or the weaknesses or immaturities of other people. How many times has somebody been grumpy or your roommate comes home and they're really cold? And the first thing that we do is we judge them. But if we're the grumpy one, well, do you have any idea how long I've been at work today? Or how my deadlines have been, my boss has been hounding me? Do you know how long my commute was? I was in an hour in traffic because there was an accident. You don't know what's going on in my life. I have all these excuses. So it's okay. But when the waitress at the restaurant isn't smiley, it's like, oh, I'm going to give you 15% tip instead of 18. I've done that. I've definitely been harsh on waitresses when they're not doing their best. When I would easily excuse myself if I were waiting tables and I had a hard day. What's harmful to communities like spreading viruses The, the, the reason, I mean, excuse me, the reason why it's har- judgment is like a virus and it's harmful to communities is because in that moment, and sometimes even when you look at them going forward, it objectifies people to what you dislike about them. And so you remember so-and-so, and you don't think about them as a whole human being. You think about so-and-so who's lazy. You think about them just in the things that they don't do well. And when judgment overcomes grace, it disenables you. It handcuffs you. You're unable to love them. Something that Dietrich Bonhoeffer said is that Christian love sees the fellow man under the cross. What he means by that is when you truly love others in Christian faith, you want them When you see their flaws, you don't get mad at it or judge it. You celebrate that God forgave it. If they don't know Christ, if they're not a Christian, instead of getting mad at their rudeness or at their imperfections, you pray, God, I hope you one day will forgive them. Christian love sees the flawed, imperfect, messed up, annoying, lazy, etc. person under the blood of Christ and wanting them to be there. Not wanting them to be punished and in a place of judgment. We want people to receive grace just as badly as we need it. Verse 3, Jesus says, Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your own eye when there is a log in your own eye? So again, Jesus is not teaching passivity and silence when it comes to correcting or judging wrongs, but he's saying, church, Examine yourselves first. Because the state in which your judgment comes, and what I'm talking about is the state of your heart in which you're judging, means everything. It matters deeply. We've got to know ourselves in our sin, but also in the grace that we've received. It's two parts. One commentator fleshes this out. He says this quote, which I thought was very powerful. Ignorance of oneself is often mixed with arrogance towards others with disastrous results. Ignorance of oneself is often mixed with arrogance towards others with disastrous results. We've got to know who we are and examine ourselves first in order that we can lovingly and righteously take the speck out of passage. 
It's not, in, in summary, it's not teaching us to be silent and, and you can say you have to be perfect in order to correct somebody's wrongs. What it is saying, what this passage have rightly judged ourselves first, when we see our sin clearly and when we see that can righteously speak truth to others with grace. And I want to pause here because this is something that I, I wrote this, right? But I struggle with so much and I'm convinced of a sermon. Or when you're in a Bible study or when you hear a sermon and somebody says, church, go examine your, all the bad things that I did. And I, I start listing all the things I need to work on, my weaknesses, criticisms that I d What next? Let me tell you that what I do, and if you do it too, is, is, it cuts it in half. Because if I were to really examine myself, yes, I would see all those jihad. If, I, if we are to rightly self-examine, we will see flaws, we will look in the mirror accurately, I'll also see a son of God. I'll also see... And so when I say that this sermon is a call to self-examination, it's got to be two-sided in X, Y, and Z because of Christ Jesus. And it's only when those two things are combined that we thoughts, what do you need to work on? What are your weaknesses? But don't you... Today's sermon is also a call to sharing that grace that you've received. And as Bonhoeffer says, we want people to stand there with us. Or like going to museums, but you know, we have a few really good museums in, in Boston. There's a picture of one of the hallways in the MFA. And I want you to, to go around viewing each piece And you look at them closely, and you examine. Instead of looking at the value of each thing, reading the little blurb about what the artist is trying to do to focus in, being able to step back and see the whole picture, and even with the individual thing, oh, it's kind of chipped here. Did the, when it moved from museum to museum, and all the fading and the discoloration, uh, minus marks, Or look at the, like, kind of goes off when the flow of the picture is going this direction. There's one stroke that kind of goes out of the way. Thanks. When I think about God walking around a museum, it's clear with, with gospel. Being saved does not mean that Jesus, that when you stand before the judge, Jesus stands on your behalf and says, they are, take their punishment. They are pure and clean. I, I think about that image of art, and I know where I'm supposed to go. I'm supposed to be tossed out. Strokes are all over the place and discoloration there is. You're seen as perfect. That, instead of learning their lesson, to without fear, something that we just sang, I, I hope you guys appreciate these songs. Eugene, can you actually put God above? I have a strong and perfect plea. A great high priest who's, my name is graven on his hand, My name is written on his heart. And then what do we sing after? Hallelujah. Before you and say, beautiful. I think, I would hope that therein we would want others to log out of your own eye. We realize that we, and it's then when we can look upon others in their imperfections and still see the dentist. We start being like him and doing his job. Instead of condemning and covered by his blood. Cheating, whatever, sexual sins, pornography. And for the most who have walked this earth has created standards up here that they hold others to, that somebody Christ into your life. 
and that you're seen as beautiful in both in the wrongdoing and in the love. And when we see the wrongdoing on other people, let us respond. Let's bow in prayer. Grace, never ever grow old. But would it be like a, I don't know, like a fine wine that with age it just gets better and better? The more experience that we have in this, we just get gladder and more joyful and happier, more grateful and thankful. And as your church speaks of and preaches the grace of Jesus Christ, we pray that we would not stop at talking about and being joyful about us being the recipients of it, but we see the responsibility and call to be the ones that are also carrying it. We stand under the cross and under your blood, cleansed, pure, white as snow. Although we did not deserve it. And I pray that all of us would be more Christ-like today, now even. By the way that we look at the flaws of others and desperately want grace for them as well. Lord, won't you, through the power of your word and the working of your Holy Spirit, cure us from this virus of sorts? And would you call each and every one of us to our individual commitment and responsibility in protecting this community of faith so that the community of faith can truly be a community of grace? We look to the example of Christ We celebrate that we can say that as we stand before the throne of God above, that our plea is answered in that there is a high priest who stands before us. And in deep gratefulness, Lord, we ask that you would stand before others as well who are in need of grace. Many of us have loved ones in this room who are not believers. Many of us have friends and co-workers who are in sin. Many of us have hardship with each other in this room. And we have judgment and hypocrisy amongst Christians. Regardless of the circumstance, we look to you, our perfect example. We want to exercise grace and truth. We want to be able to take the speck out of a brother's eye while knowing our own faults and while carrying that message with the grace of Jesus Christ. So Lord, let us not judge as the world teaches, but let us judge as Christ has. So in thankfulness and praise, Lord, we respond. Continue to be with us, be with us as we conclude our service And we ask that you would be with us, not so that we can feel better, but so that in your presence here, in our acknowledgement of your presence, that we would be able to holistically, with every ounce of our being, give you praise and thanks for the way that you have loved a broken people. We celebrate you. We're unashamed of the cross, and we're so glad for it. And we love you, Lord. And we are so grateful that you have loved us. I pray in Jesus' name, amen.
Lord. 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 Lord.